inheriting money is really complicated for people and often very damaging um, and very difficult. If you leave a bunch of money to your kid or your grandkid um, and there's no preparation for that and there's no training and there's no learning and there's no there's no conversation like the one we're having about what is this? And what is its purpose? What is it going to do in your life? You're essentially handing that kid a loaded gun and saying, figure it out as you go. Today, we're going to be talking about something that is probably one of the most taboo subjects, especially in America. You're not allowed to ask someone how much money they have. What do they have in the bank? Uh, and really, it's a conversation that dominates so many of us, either chasing after it, putting all of our time into getting more, defining our self-worth by the size of our bank account or the size of our business. Those of us that inherited money feeling guilt, do we deserve it? What would people think if they knew how much we had? If we don't have enough, you know, we are afraid of what the world's going to do to us. Uh, and so it's so interesting. It's a, it's a thing that takes up so much of our life. We don't really talk about it. And so this, this next person is probably one of the few people that can really speak on not just the money piece, our relationship to the money, but really the spiritual aspect of it. What does it mean in our life? What does money mean? What are we supposed to do with it? And how do we find true fulfillment despite our relationship, our complex relationship to money? Welcome to the Dream Beyond. I'm your host, Nick Tarasio. I'm a CEO, musician, and overall seeker of truth, inspiration, and simply put, how to live the most fulfilling life possible. Growing up surrounded by extremely wealthy and successful people gave me unique and unfiltered perspectives of those who have seemingly made it. And on The Dream Beyond, we're letting you in on what it really takes to achieve your dreams, what happens when it turns out your destination isn't the promised land you were expecting, and how to process the lessons from your past while mapping a course to true fulfillment. Let's get started. Hey guys, I'm here with someone who for 18 years was a professor of law at the University of Colorado. Uh, he focused on bargaining, dispute resolution, transactional law, and the complexities of multi-generational family enterprises. He also serves as president of a family office, of which he's part of second generation. He speaks regularly on the topics of family offices, private trust companies, and intergenerational leadership. And he's also an ordained Zen Buddhist priest, which I think is so cool to have that broad swath of experience. Please welcome Scott Peppet to the show. Thanks for being here, Scott. Awesome. So uh, I would love to dive in with kind of your earliest relationship or earliest memories to the concept of money and wealth when, when you were young or a child, for example. Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, i not sure I remember um, the very first experiences. I remember, so my, my parents were sort of um, Midwestern, um, you know, kids who first in their families, both to go to college. Uh, and my dad was a management consultant. He ended up working for Pete Marwitz, which became KPMG. And so they did incredibly well by any standard they had in their heads of what they could have expected, right? They, um, I think they, they succeeded far beyond their wildest dreams, lived a very very nice upper middle class, you know, uh, professional life. Um, I remember probably the earliest memory I have about money was my, when we used to ask my father where money came from or like, how do we pay for things? He would say, um, it came from the sky. Like it was the, somehow it like, you know, arrived. And I remember in retrospect, thinking about that and thinking later as an adult, that it was clear that it wasn't something he was very comfortable talking about, right? It was, it was like a, 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 an answer that um, made it sort of ended the conversation, right? It just sort of uh, money kind of appeared, um, but uh, it wasn't something you know. I I was privileged to, to not have to worry a lot about money growing up, um, unlike the two of them when they when they were growing up. Um, my mom was raised in a boarding house, so I mean, like they had grown up in relatively very different circumstances. Um, but it wasn't until I was, a you know, going to college for a young adult that I started really thinking about, um, money and, and how it worked. It was part of your upbringing, this concept of money coming from the sky. I've never heard that before. That's a really interesting idea. And I'm wondering if that in any way influenced your path in college or, or I mean, how, how did you end up going down this road of getting involved in, you know, kind of family law and, and transactional, all that kind of stuff? 
So I was a peace studies uh, major as an undergrad. I, I grew up in part of my life when I was very young. We grew up in, in France and um, it was the 70s and the Cold War was happening and conflict was a real thing. And World War II was still a very real memory in Europe um, when I was little. And so I think a lot of that influenced me. And I was very focused on conflict and conflict resolution in college. And then when I went to law school, the whole thing. I didn't think a lot about, you know, I, I've always, for whatever reason, money was never particularly interesting to me as a, like, I'm going to go out and make a lot of money was never a real goal of mine. Um, I always thought that I wanted to teach. I always thought that I wanted to do something in the conflict world to make the world, you know, more peaceful. Um, and so that was really always the vector that I was on was was a more academic um, vector. What's always been weird about my life or my karma or something is um, I've, I've always ended up um, attracting uh, financial capital or ending up in these contexts with a great deal of financial capital, working with families that had, you know, family businesses or family wealth or family foundations, and 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 then um, marrying into a family uh, with a, a large family enterprise. And so, I don't know why that is. <laughs> I'm not sure how that happened exactly, but I, I've always found myself in those contexts, which is a little strange. Like, so how did? How did your relationship then as an adult and even through this work and managing conflict, how did your relationship to wealth start to develop on its own? It's a good question. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I went to law school and I had this conflict-related business that I ran. I, I was a, a consultant and I worked with all kinds of different organizations doing conflict management, conflict resolution, uh, you know, communication skills, negotiation, all that stuff. And so I always felt in my, let's call it in my 20s or in my 30s, like I could make enough money. Like if I needed more, I could go make more because I was essentially working on a kind of per day basis, right? So you needed more, you had to go find more clients and work more days. I think that the reality is I always was more focused on human capital than on financial capital, just as a human being, right? As a person. So I was a teacher. I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I was a conflict person, right? So I was a mediator and a conflict resolution expert. And so my whole thing was trying to get humans to to be less confused, and, right? To figure out how their way through conflict in a way that was less damaging to them and to others. Um, and so human capital was really always the thing that was more interesting to me than financial capital. Um, financial capital, I think for a long time felt not toxic, but sort of risky, right? Like it was a thing and it existed in the world and they had to deal with it. But like, I was never attracted to the, to the wall street world. I was never attracted to the big law firm world, you know, where, where the money centers are. Um, I was always much more attracted to human potential and human growth and, and all of that. And, and my Zen practice and my Buddhist practice was probably part of that too. Um, and it wasn't until much later that I think I kind of combined or reconciled those things, um, most likely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to also, uh, you know, in my mind, I think about how conflict often centers around money. Yeah. Right? It's like when you think of in family or even like the, yeah. the so taboo, I, I often talk with friends about that, where it's like, if I want to offend someone, I could ask them anything about their sex life, their polit the political leaning. But if I'm like, how much money do you have? Yeah. It's like, whoa, 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 take it easy, buddy. We're not allowed to talk about that. Yeah, so it's yeah. interesting that it's kind of the the one big black box we have, at least least in in the American way. You, you don't really talk about it. And I think of like when I when I play out a lot of the conflicts I grew up around. I imagine a lot of that was somehow related to wait, who got more money, or like you know if someone died and we were trying to pass something down to the family. All the fighting that happens when people are trying to figure out how to divide an estate. Yeah, I I don't know that it's true. I can't verify the quote, but I've heard it said that Freud said. Sex, religion, and money were the three big taboos, and that money was the you know the most extreme of those three. That you could people would talk about the other two way more than they would talk about money. I think it's true. It's true in our culture. You know, you're right. People people will talk about almost anything now, but they very rarely want to talk about how much they make, how much you make, how much you have, how much they have, where it came from. And yeah, I mean the conflict thing. Money is a proxy for all kinds of things, right? I mean, money is a proxy for love. Money is a proxy for attention in families, you know, where um, money can be used in a lot of different ways that isn't always very healthy 
uh, and leads to lots of conflict where you're arguing about the money, but really what you're arguing about is, did mom love me more or you more, you know, or why did dad pay so much more attention to you when we were in high school? Um, and you, you end up fighting decades later over an estate plan or something, because um, it's a proxy for all of that. I, I, my my curiosity goes to a, a comment a friend of mine said a, a long time ago was uh, money always finds its way back to its rightful owners, and I think he was really alluding to like yeah you could win lotto you could come into a bunch of money but it's going to go back to people that understand how to hold the energy of it, and I, I'm wondering like is is the ability to manage conflict somehow tethered to the ability to hold lots of money? Or are there other behaviors or characteristics that you'd say people that hold a lot of money and can keep a lot of money have to be able to be good with? Well, I think your friend is referring to the basic principle of entropy, right? I mean, uh, the universe is an entropic place. And uh, so the reality is money is just um, you know, aggregated energy and material form, right? It's essentially energy. This is from my, my great friend, Jay Hughes, but money is essentially just energy that's been transformed into matter and stored in physical form. And energy, as we know, is entropic, right? So it you generally, the uh, systems get um, colder over time. And so, I mean, that's an incredible abbreviation, but essentially, right? And so I do think that, you know, the old adage is that, you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations or whatever. It's it's hard to concentrate energy into matter like that and store it and have it remain in one place with one person or one family or one what business even controlling it. Right? I mean, if you look at the S&P 500 right now, how many businesses are on the S&P 500 that were there a hundred years ago? It's a very small number um, for the same reason. Um, and so, to a certain extent, you know, I think your friend's comment is probably right, which is money. I'm not sure if it gets back to the rightful place necessarily, but it it tends to dissipate, right? It tends to go back to the river, back to the mean. Um, and a lot of, and that's probably okay, actually, right? I mean, that's probably not a terrible thing. Um, lots of families and lots of businesses are fighting the uphill battle of trying to prevent that or trying to, you know... Um, um, maintain what they have, and that's also okay. But, um, but it is it is I think endemic in in the way the world works that it's hard to do, and um, you're fighting against natural forces, including just that families. You know, most families, for example, that have great financial capital, it's because of some person who started the business, right? and did really well, or maybe multiple generations of people. But that talent, that skill, that luck, that ability um, doesn't always you know, get replicated in many, many future generations. It's highly unlikely what, what a great wealth creator has done. And so it's highly unlikely that someone else is going to come along and continue that. And so again, you know, family systems being what they are, it's typical that the financial capital starts to dissipate. And I don't think that's necessarily, like I said, I don't think that's bad. I think it can be painful, right? It can be difficult for people um, and it can be um, disorderly and chaotic and cause conflict and all kinds of things as it happens. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, it happens more violently than others, um, you know, and, and, and sometimes it happens more peacefully or more calmly, but, um, but it's, I won't say it's inevitable, but it's pretty typical. Uh, so the the Buddhism piece of this, Zen Buddhism, uh, like as you know, as I was reflecting on your background, and and your story of you know, I just always assumed I could just work another day and make more if I needed to. That whole like there'll always be enough is kind of what I hear in that, and that's a, a place I've gone back to myself. Is like I want to get to that space of can I just believe there'll always be enough? But the flip side being the pain of setting a bar, of saying like these are now my financial standards and this is the way I relate to the world and the energy I need to run it that pain of the backslide, does Buddhism offer any perspective or does your spiritual practice offer any perspective for someone of like, yeah, it's great that you have it. You may not be able to keep it. So there's value in learning how to come to peace with the fact that it may exit at some point and you may not want to resist that process too much. It's funny that that's your follow-up question because as I was speaking in the prior answer, I was thinking about the basic principle of Buddhism of impermanence, right? Um, I mean, one of the very basic lessons of 
of the historical Buddha is the that that everything is impermanent. Um, everything you know, everything you love, everything, everyone you love, everything you've built, it's all going to go eventually, right? It's all going to crumble and 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 disappear. And that's an incredibly painful thing for humans because we're attached to things, right? We love our family, we love our house, we love our gold watch, whatever whatever we love um, and are attached to. Um, will will vanish eventually. Uh, you know, none of it will last, and that's um, you know one of the Buddha's uh, awakening insights was to see that impermanence in the world. So I do think that um, I mean, again, sort of laughing at myself in the prior answer. You know, it's it's uh, if you're not particularly if you're not clinging to it. it the Buddhist practice is essentially a, about not clinging to anything, right? Um, that there, there is no, there's nothing to attach to. It's not even turtles all the way down. It's, it's emptiness all the way down. And so it's, um, it's a much the, the 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 sort of Buddhist insight is that um, it's actually a much saner and healthier place to to live from if you can be honest with yourself about that impermanence in the world. And it makes you open your eyes to the wonder of what you have at this moment, which is your your health and your body and your love and the people that you care about. And even though they're all going to go and you're going to go, you that brings enormous joy in, in, in if you can recognize it. But a lot of the time we live, you know, um, denying that right trying to pretend that that's just not the, the the nature of things and you know we build up great big bank accounts and great big houses and and great big gravestones and all these things and none of it none of it helps fight the reality that at the end of the day uh everything you know everything is impermanent um so i do think it's easier maybe <laughs> for a buddhist uh, or someone in that sort of practice tradition um to not hold quite so tightly to material things. I mean, I, I would hope it is. That doesn't mean being an aesthetic. It doesn't mean you don't like the things. It doesn't mean that having those things isn't nice, um, but it but it might change your relationship to that thing or that wealth or that financial capital a little bit. I uh, I just started tapping into, uh, I think it's Pema Chodron, I believe is her name, How, how You Live is How You Die. Um, and so... Uh, I'm really interested in this idea of impermanence and it's something that I've heard it from a lot of people in my business community. And I know I deal with this a lot as I've kind of been on this spiritual path and meditating and interested in, in different aspects of Buddhism. But the question always comes up is like, if I really come to terms with this idea of impermanence or even, you know, embrace the idea that I'm dying, will I stop caring about money, right? Like I don't want to stop caring about money. I don't want to get out of the game. And I, I hear a lot of that of like, I almost refuse to feel connected to the world around me and find that spiritual peace because I'm like, well, what the hell am I going to do anything for at that point? Nothing matters. I'll just be, I'll just be sitting, sitting yeah. enlightened on the streets yeah. of New York. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Um, look, I, there's a, a phrase that, uh, or a word that, uh, I think is helpful there, which is, I don't think that Buddhist practice or any kind of spiritual practice or meditative practice, whatever, whatever tradition it comes from. Um, is about what I would what, what I would call calmism, right? It's not about you know we we use the word Zen in our culture as like oh you're so Zen you know you're so and what we mean is like you're so calm you're so chill you don't get mad you know you're like super and 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 Zen practice and most meditation practices do change your relationship to your emotions and so people can be quite calm but Zen masters are not particularly flat, right? They're not. They're not, they're not disengaged with the world. The, you're not zenning out, you know, um, and just sort of sitting in this nirvanic, blissful state. In fact, most uh, masters that you see or read about are massively engaged with the suffering of the world, right? And with the joy of the world. The, it, my, my Zen teacher was the weirdest dancer I've ever met, right? I mean, he could get in there and go for it. 
Um, and and the true, same is true. Probably the best known Buddhist, of course, is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And anyone who's ever seen him or seen a video of him, you know, he's a very joyful, engaged human being. He's not just sitting on a lotus flower, you know, um, wishing the world well. And so I do think that there's an initial question of like, well, gee, if I calm myself down so much, does that make me, will I flatten out, right? Will it all just become like super groovy no matter what? And the answer is, well, kind of, but not really, right? Um, you, you might be more engaged in the world, maybe differently, maybe slightly different goals or priorities. Um, but I don't think the, well, I, I believe that the, the goal is not detachment in that. See, again, the words get real weird in the West for us because Buddhists will use words like detachment or disattach, you know, disattaching from things. And we hear that and we think, oh, well, that means just like zoning out, right? Like, and, and we're not trying to train a bunch of people to go to a Zendo or go to a monastery or whatever and just zone out. If that's what we're trying to do, it's, that's not a particularly interesting project, right? What we're trying to do is wake up and what does that mean? And uh, I think I think that that process engages, not disengages, ultimately. Uh, but there is a uh, an there, there, there's a little worry about. Well, am I just gonna? I mean, I hear the worry. Am I just gonna disengage? And I think the answer is no. If you're just disengaging, something's going wrong. We also hear like, you know, meditative practices about selflessness or about changing your relationship to the ego. And that's true. I mean, at the, at the most fundamental level, uh, the, the Buddha's and, and many spiritual practices, core realization has to do with you not being quite what you think you are, right? That you're maybe a little less uh, important in the story than, than maybe we are trained when we're growing up. But that doesn't mean you're going to end up just sitting, staring at a wall in a, in a meditation hall, um, you know, be void, vacant. You're, you're going to still wake up in the morning and need to do something. Um, and so trying to do things that don't hurt people would be a good place to start. And trying to do things that actually help people would be a, a really good second place to start. But you're not going to end up doing nothing, right? There is yeah. no nothing. So taking this background, and again, I, I imagine a lot of the people that are listening are in a space where they've generated a lot of wealth in their business or they are multi-generational. And I'm assuming you've dealt with a lot of those people that are like, hey, what do I do for the future? Or I have kids that I don't want to ruin with yeah. all of this wealth when it transfers. Do you bring some of the spiritual perspective to the way that you have those conversations or are those two separate worlds in your mind? Uh, they're not two separate worlds in my mind. You know, um, it's a delicate thing because people come from all kinds of different spiritual practices and spiritual traditions or no spiritual tr tradition that they identify with. And so it's not something I typically lead with, but these conversations, I mean, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, these conversations about money take people to spirit very quickly in a lot of conversation, right? Because, because money is tied to values. It's tied to purpose. It's tied to goals. It's tied to what they want for their children and their family. Um, and so you're very quickly into the realm of the meaning of life and the meaning of things and not in the realm of taxes and balance sheets. Uh, there's taxes and balance sheets, you know, to deal with and a lot of lawyers and all that stuff. But, but very quickly, what most people really want to think about is, is this going to hurt me? Is it going to hurt my children? Is it fair? You know, we live in a very unequal, you know, very difficult moment in in terms of money and wealth and the distribution of wealth. And people are wrestling with that. You know, all people are wrestling with that. Wealthy people uh, uh, are wrestling with that just like everybody else. So there's questions about what do I do to make an impact? How do I use what I've gotten through good fortune or whatever to be beneficial to others? Those are all spiritual questions. Those are all deep questions, right? Yeah. Um, about who we are as human beings and what we're doing here. Uh, so... I don't see them as separate because everybody ends up in those same conversations, whichever route they get, you know, they follow to get there. One of the things you told me about in the past, which I never thought about it this way, but you had talked about the idea that when you give someone a big inheritance, 
it's a little bit like, I forgot, I don't know if you said it was nuclear energy or dropping a bomb or something like that, but I, I'd love to hear more about what you've seen and how it actually does impact people as people are thinking about, like, I wanted to make all this money, but yeah, I don't want to just give it to my kids willy-nilly. I don't want to just blow up their life. Yeah. I mean, look, I, again, with the caveat that this is, um, you know, a seriously first world problem, right? I mean, that, that it's it's easy for people in our society and our culture right now to say, look, the poor rich people, you know, what are they so worried about? And, and there's some validity to that. Um, and um, inheriting money is really complicated for people and often very damaging um, and very difficult. Uh, I, the, the metaphor I probably used was a loaded gun, um, or mm, something. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, if you, if you leave a bunch of money to your kid or your grandkid, um, and there's no preparation for that and there's no training and there's no learning and there's no, there's no conversation like the one we're having about what is this and what is its purpose? What is it going to do in your life? You're essentially handing that kid a loaded gun and saying, figure it out as you go. Um, and it's not so easy and it's not so easy in a couple of ways. Sure. Money makes material things much easier. So they're not going to starve and they're not going to have to worry about where they live and how they're going to pay their rent. And that's a big deal. And, uh, it can be very demoral. It can be very degrading of someone's sense of self-worth to have money that they didn't earn. Um, and that they're somebody else earned, right. And that they're not they might feel quite ashamed of, or at least ambivalent about, right? They're not sure it's really okay. I'm like, I mean, I meet way more 20 somethings and 30 somethings who have inherited some money, pick the number of zeros. I don't think it really matters. And who hide it, right? Who hide it from their friends, who hide it from their peers, who hide it from their uh, significant others, you know, the people they're dating because they're nervous um, about what it says about them or what, how it's going to be perceived or the issues it's going to raise. And that's not good. And it's not, you know, you're not living an integrated life if you're hiding all that stuff. And so again, you know, it's easy to say, well, poor rich kid, you know, they'll figure it out and, and, and okay. But, but the thing for me that's meaningful about this work is, look, the reality is Money does concentrate energy in material form, and it's not distributed equally, right? Okay. And we live in a society where we say, you're free to make money uh, as long as you do it legally, and you're free if you've then amassed more money than you use in your lifetime, you're free to leave it to your heirs as long as some of it goes to the government, right? And we incentivize people to give it away, but but you're allowed to leave some. So as long as we continue to live in that world, um, the... The downside of inheritors who are uncomfortable or, or, or have not integrated their financial capital into their lives in a real serious way where they feel ownership is they don't do anything with it. They, they end up sort of frozen and sort of stuck, right? And this is, I think, a spiritual challenge because they, you know, the social trope or the social sort of story that we talk about is, oh, the trust fund groups, right? They're going to go out and they're going to buy Ferraris and they're going to you know, blow it on champagne at, at clubs in New York. And there are some who are doing that. But the vast majority of the ones that I've met are not doing that. What they're doing is not, is they're frozen. They're stuck, not wanting to screw it up, not wanting to look weird to their peers, not wanting to really kind of do anything with it. And they live this very kind of constrained life. And it's like, wait, 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 as a society, we actually want you to own this so that you'll go do good stuff with it, right? Like, this is back to your engage, disengage question. Like, we want you to engage. We want you to feel like you own this enough that you can use it for climate change or use it for to alleviate suffering or poverty or whatever the thing is, you know, that 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 you're going to engage with. We don't want you to leave it in some investment account for the next hundred years and never feel like you can use it and redeploy it into the world. Um, and so that's why it matters, right? I mean, I... I said to someone the other day, you know, we live in this really screwy moment in history where we have climate change on the one hand, the greatest threat probably that we've ever faced as a species or as a planet. And simultaneously, we have this massive wealth inequality. And I said, what if that's actually a blessing where it happens to be 
that you could get, I don't know, some ungodly percentage of the world's financial capital organized by getting a thousand people in a room. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but I bet if you got the thousand, a thousand people in a small arena, you could have 70% of the world's financial capital represented. Now you can say that's really disgusting and that's terrible, but maybe since we have a collective action problem in climate change, the exact thing we need is to be able to organize all that financial capital really efficiently. So maybe that's a blessing, right? Maybe that's actually an opportunity, but not if all those people are frozen and don't want to talk about any of this, right? Because they're never going to engage. What's the antidote for those people being frozen? How do, how do you approach that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the inheritors that I've worked with and talked to and counseled and whatever, I think the first thing is to start taking account of how they actually feel about their money or their financial capital. If they are hiding it from their friends, if they are, you know, I, I talked to someone yesterday who said her son takes, you know, the cheapest flight home from university and usually makes like three stops, you know, cause it's like the cheapest way to get home. And, and she said, what do I do about that? I said, you don't do anything except talk about it, right? Like start with why does this feel better to you? And again, I don't really care. I mean, if you want to take the cheapest flight or the, or the direct flight, I, what doesn't really make any difference in the world, but it may, something's going on with that person, right? Like he's making a choice. that's not totally clear why that, feels impactful. Like, I'm not sure you're doing anything better from a carbon point of view. <laughs> not sure you're making any difference in the world. You're still buying a ticket, right? Like, but the real answer was, she said, you know, he doesn't want his friends to, to know that he can afford the direct flight. Well, that's, that's emotionally harmful to him, right? He's, he's hiding something. Um, and so the first place is to just start taking stock. What are the ways that this is leading you because because he's being dishonest i mean that's just let's put a point on it right um I, I met another inheritor who used to she lived in an apartment in new york and that her parents owned and she worked at a startup and she said i used to go out with my friends because my office was right near where i lived but at the end of the day when we go out for drinks or whatever they'd all get on the subway to go back to brooklyn and i would go into the subway station and then leave by a different exit so that they didn't know that i lived in midtown I don't really care except that you're being dishonest, right? That, And you have as one of your core values being honest and transparent with people and you can't be if you're hiding this part of who you are. So so one part is just beginning at the, how are you behaving? How are you acting? And is it actually aligned with who you say you want to be? And, and, um, and often the answer is no, right? You might be spending too much. You might be hiding things, you might be whatever, but you might say, oh yeah, I really, you know, I really care about making an impact in the world. But when I look at what you actually give away every year, it's not very much. Right. And you're not very focused on it and you kind of do it half-assed and okay, wait a minute. Right. So let's try to figure out like, where are you in this journey of your relationship to financial capital? That's, that's kind of the beginning, I think. Um, and, and often what we, discover is, oh, it's really complicated, right? The person, young person, let's say, or older person, uh, it's really complicated. They have assumptions, they have stories, they have rules that they've inherited from their parents or their grandparents, and they have to re-examine those things and really think about, well, is that how I want to live? There's no absolutes, right? There's no formula for how to do this, but one way not to do it is to be living counter to who you believe you are or want to be in the world. That's, we know that's not going to be, not going to feel good. Um, that tends to get people somewhat unstuck. The other one that's real simple for me is what brings you joy? You know, is this stuff bringing you joy? <laughs> like, hey, are you, you know, going to these meetings and investment advisors and whatever? Is it making you happy? Uh, is it making the people around you happy? Is it yeah, making the world better? Are you are you happy with this? And very, very often, even the, the people that we would describe in this sort of social story of like the rich inheritor who's spending too much, 
they're often very unhappy and they know they're unhappy. Uh, they just don't seem to want to identify with that, right? They got to kind of, so they have to slow down and they have to really take stock of, of where they are. Um, and that tends to then lead to conversations that get them less stuck, right? Okay. So what does feel genuinely joyful to you? Well, when I help people or when I, whatever, when, when I run my business or when I, you know, do, okay, let's do more of that, right? Let's figure out a path where you're doing more of that and less of this other set of behaviors that is not really serving you or anybody else. And have you seen where people, I mean, I, let me back up. I think a lot of people I've talked to, especially I, I grew up middle-class. I think the dream was like lotto ticket win, sit by the beach. Life's going to be amazing. Right. And I'm imagining that you've met people that had that opportunity that had a pretty ordinary life and then suddenly had the ability to go and hang out on a beach until the end. And I, I'm wondering if it was as dark of a journey as we've heard about for a lot of people of like, wow, this is, I feel like my life is meaningless. Very few people do it. I mean, that I've met, you know, uh, the beach gets really boring really fast. <laughs> Most people, I mean, I don't know. I, I like the beach as much as anybody else, but I can't stay there longer than, you know, an afternoon before I start to get, you know, oh, I'm going to go do, I mean, and I can sit in a meditation hall for like days and not do anything, but a beach, like it starts to get a little boring. I, look, I, I think that, um, a lot of this depends on what you think human, how you, how you really think humans are wired. Right. And, uh, for me, humans seem to be mostly wired around, uh, love, creativity, um, and, you know, generativity, doing things in the world for themselves and for their families and for others around them, um, that lead to community, lead to connection, lead to, um, you know, all of those positive emotions. We're social creatures. So yes, there's, there are people who win the lotto and go build a big beach house and sit on the beach. But pretty often, most of those people that I've ever met are back in their church or their community center or whatever pretty quickly, like looking for something meaningful to do. Uh, because the beach stops being meaningful pretty quickly. I mean, I know a lot more folks with a lot of financial capital who are working 60 hours, 70 hours a week. Again, I'm not crying, you know, I'm not crying for them. They have a really nice life. Um, and there's lots of people working 60 or 70 or 80 hours a week who don't have those material benefits. But it's not as if money tend, always just leads people to go, cool, I'm done. You know, uh, just bring me another pina colada. Most of the time they're trying to figure out, what do I do next? You know? Um, whether it's charity or starting a business or helping their friend or whatever, what do I do next that, that makes me feel like I'm leading a meaningful life? Yeah. Which really kind of teased me into my kind of the culminating question is, you know, what is that connection between fulfillment and wealth? And, and I mean, that's really what this podcast is all about is I think a lot of people climb that climb that first mountain of like, I just want to get all the external markers of success. I want to have the money in the bank. I want to know that I could just, you know, get that Oprah money. Right. And then getting there and going like, well, you know, again, I'm in New York, so I, I'm surrounded by people that do have the Oprah money and they often have seemed very unhappy, very lost, very confused, kind of that stuck energy that you were talking about on some level. And I just wonder what, what, what thoughts you have on the connection between fulfillment and, and wealth. And I think you've already kind of illuminated on some of that, but I, I'd love to hear it uh, uh, kind of deeper. Yeah. I don't think there's any connection at all. Look, they've been studying this, right? How, the connection between happiness and money. And there's all kinds of studies trying to figure out, like, you know, there was a great study for a while that people would cite that said, if you made, I can't remember what it was, but like more than $70,000 and it didn't matter. Every incremental dollar was irrelevant. And I don't have any opinion on where all those studies are going to come out. It, clearly, it makes a difference if you can feed yourself and have a, a, a dry, safe place to live. Those things, those those minimal conditions obviously matter a great deal. But but beyond that, um, do I think there's much correlation? No. I, I think I know very, very financially wealthy people who are incredibly happy, optimistic, loving, connected, empathetic, warm, growing, learning human beings. And I know 
and I know very poor people who are the same, and I know the opposite on both sides, right? And yeah. so do you, and so do all of us. So, you know, I I think that we've got different vectors here, right? Which is human development as a human being. How are we doing, right? Are we growing? Are we learning? How are you doing on that on that front? And then there's the material uh, question of of how you're doing, uh, what access to financial capital you have. And one of the things that I'm amazed at is when I meet really financially wealthy people who aren't really doing anything on this whole other vector, right? Like they're pretty not, I mean, you could be invest. holy moly, you have all this money. You could be investing in an incredible coach, an incredible therapist and a nutritionist and like you could be, or, or just giving to others or you could be, and the answer is like, yeah, and I haven't really done. I, that's like not kind of my thing. And so what what I've come up with is like, okay, well, there's people who that's their thing, and there's people who's kind of that's not their thing. And uh, at least my take has always been, happiness seems to correlate much more with growth than anything else. Subjective experience of happiness. Human beings like to develop. They like to grow. Uh, they like to create. They like to expand. They like to learn. And they like to love. I mean, the big thing they like to do is love and create, right? And if they're doing those things, they're and they're wired to do those things, then they tend to be more optimistic, happy people. And if they're sort of stuck not doing those things for whatever reason, whatever self-story they have, no matter how much money they have, um, their subjective experience of happiness is generally lower. Now, I have no idea whether money inhibits or promotes that, but my own experience, that kind of growth, but my own experience is it doesn't seem to correlate really at all. Um, some people have lots of money and use it really well in those kinds of ways. And some people uh, have lots of money and really don't. So for someone sitting on incredible amounts of wealth, whether earned or inherited, if they're not feeling that sense of fulfillment, do you have any advice for them? Do you have any considerations for them? Yeah. I mean, number one, don't, I mean, I'm going to be nitpicky here. Don't use the word wealth to mean money, right? Wealth means wealth, well-being as a holistic concept. Your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, your spiritual health, your social capital, your social relationships, your ability to love, all of those things. That's wealth. And financial capital is a part of that. Material belongings and material wealth is a part of that. But wealth, being wealthy is is a much broader concept. Your, your previous podcast uh, guest, you know, you were talking about some of those things. So that's a mental shift in the use of a word, which is a little nitpicky. And again, and my friend Jay Hughes is 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 partly the genesis of that um, that movement. But it really does matter for people because they say, "Well, I I have everything," and I say, "Wait, do you have everything? Like, you're divorced and you're single and you don't have a partner right now, and you're really sort of unhappy about that and." You've been having all kinds of physical health problems and you can't seem to get your hands around them. And you don't seem very connected to a community that really loves you and that you really love. So I'm not sure you have everything. You have a bank account. Like, it's nice. It's a nice bank account. But like, you can't actually go buy most of those other things. So where are you going to get them, right? And and we know that. Like, this isn't rocket science. We know that. But we, as a society, as a culture... We privilege financial capital over all these other forms of capital so intensely that we kind of are surprised. Like, gee, I have a big bank account, but I'm miserable. And we're like, and and why is that surprising? Like, yeah, you have a big bank account, but you don't have good social relations because you're kind of an asshole, right? Like, you, you or whatever. Like, you're kind of not a nice person, um, and you've never really come to terms with not being such a nice person. And nobody really likes you. So we're not really surprised, the rest of us, that you're having a hard time. Um, I think culturally, we've got to get over that surprise, right? We just have to... So so what would my advice be for people with a lot of financial capital? Man, my biggest advice is always seek out real feedback. The biggest deficit I see with financially wealthy people is people aren't honest with them. Everybody's working for them, Right. Every, their friends, everybody's dependent on them, their kids, their their spouse sometimes, everyone's dependent on them in some kind of financial way. And so it's really hard for them to get real feedback about who they are, how they are, how they're behaving, 
how people perceive them. I mean, I, I joke when I, you know, I, I married into a business family and I always say that the day after I got married, I was smarter, funnier, and better looking because some people laughed at my jokes more, you know, and thought I, boy, everything I said seemed to be real smart. And that's, that's a crazy way to live. Uh, and so my advice is always, how can you find people who will be honest with you, really give you real feedback? Um, and those are the, that's the biggest deficit for a lot of these financially well-off people. Yeah. Is there, um, you know, I've thought a lot about this idea of like, do we choose the life we're born into on some level? And I know that there are some practices that believe that. I, I've wondered if it is, you know, coming into a life where you inherit a lot of money, is there uh, an ethical responsibility and a, a, a spiritual responsibility that comes along with that of do something with this? Like, don't feel guilt or don't feel unworthy necessarily. I know it's not, it's, I, can't, I can't shoot anybody into that, but is there kind of a like, hey, this is your spiritual path. Like, learn how to be with this, learn how to hold this energy and do something meaningful with it. I mean, in my view, yes. Um, but I would broaden it. I, look, I think all of us are in this life with an inheritance. We're, we're in human form. We're blessed with consciousness. We have opposable thumbs. You know, we have a whole bunch of things that, that um, are pretty remarkable. And maybe we have financial capital, maybe we don't. But to a certain extent, I think we all have at some point, I don't know if it's an obligation, but an opportunity to use what we have to be helpful, um, to, to, to be compassionate, to, to do things in the world that are helpful to others. Um, you know, the, one of the great Buddhist scholars um, said, this is a thousand years ago, but said, you know, wisdom is the womb of compassion, right? You, when you start to realize the, the, the essence of life, your only natural reaction is compassion for others who are maybe less fortunate or who are suffering or who have less uh, less insight into how to live or, or whatever. And so I think that's true of everybody. And, um, and it happens to be that if you randomly get selected to be, in, to be born into a lifetime with a bunch of material wealth, well, then should you use that too uh, to be compassionate and help others? Yeah, probably, right? Uh, it seems pretty hard to make the argument that, you know, just cause you randomly got selected in the genetic pool for that lifetime that you just get to like, pretend that didn't happen, <laughs> right? Like it happened. Um, you have this unbelievable opportunity. So, uh, do something with it. And, and I don't have a lot of judgment around, well, I don't have a lot of judgment around any of it. I, I don't have a lot of judgment around what you do so like create a business employ people hallelujah right like unbelievable way to help the world uh give it to charity plant trees and if you don't do anything with it i mean it's hard to do nothing there is no there is no neutral gear here but if you don't deploy it very intentionally i don't have a lot of judgment around that either because i have a lot of empathy for the causes of that stuckness i mean that's just part of the I know I know lots of people in that place, and I don't envy that. Um, but do I think it's all things considered better to engage than to disengage? Better to be in first gear or second gear than in neutral? Yeah. Closing question for you is: um, What is your dream beyond? No, great question. I mean, my real honest answer is. I hope that as a species and as individuals, we can continue to wake up to the ways that we're harming ourselves and others and the planet and the ecosystem we live in. Um, I hope that we can raise consciousness uh, and be less confused. Most harm that I see in the world is caused by confusion. It's caused by people hurting each other out of confusion, out of small interests and ego that if they even could step back for half a second, they would say, yeah, that's not really what I want to be doing. And so I'm an eternal 
naive optimist. Um, but my dream beyond is uh, that that we can grow enough, fast enough, and wake up enough to uh, flourish and survive. I'll say that this conversation, I mean, you and I started a conversation, whatever it was, uh, a year ago or something. And the connection between spirit and money is hard for people to talk about. And it, there aren't a lot of conversations about it. There are some, but not a ton. But I think it's really, really an important uh, intersection because, like I said, there's just so much potential that can be unleashed for human betterment, the, the, the betterment of the, not just humans, but of the, um, the planet and et cetera. Uh, if, if we can connect these two things, you know, put, put, and, and to a certain extent, I don't think we have to connect them. I think they're inherently connected. Um, we just have to recognize that, that, that connection and, and find ways to live in the world and use what we have, however much we have, um, uh, for, for, uh, positive ends. That's beautiful. And, and I, I would, I'm going to consider your answer a blessing for me to have this conversation more because I've more and more, I've thought about it. I'm like, this must be really hard, especially we shame the people that don't have it. We shame the people that do have it. Uh, we shame the people that made it. We shame the people that inherited. It, it's like, a, I can imagine everyone's just stuck and everyone's upset. And as you said, there's, there's a real sense of confusion. So, um, I very much appreciate your answer. Uh, it's a beautiful thing that you shared and I hope to be having more and more of these conversations. Thanks to the perspective you shared with me and hopefully people that are, that are listening to the show also are like, you know, I've never really thought about those things. I've never really consciously thought of how I apply my spiritual beliefs to the way that I relate to money, the way I create it, the way I, the way I share it, the way I create value in the world with it. So um, what a beautiful conversation. Again, I, I appreciate the support in it. And if anyone is curious to learn more about what Scott's up to, you could check out scottpeppet.com. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, and yeah, Scott, you're just, you're such an interesting dude. I really love the, the different worlds that you play in. Um, and yeah, thank, thanks for sharing your wisdom today. Uh, thanks so much. Listen, it's been great having the conversation. I'm happy to talk anytime. And, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to reactions. This is complicated stuff and, Super interesting to talk about. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Dream Beyond. I hope that you received whatever message or inspiration you were meant to get from today's episode. I had a great time recording it for you. If you love the show, please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review it. That really helps get the word out. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at instagram.com slash nickterrasio linkedin.com slash in slash Nick Tarasio or youtube.com slash n Tarasio.